Um, so if you could uh, grab a Bible, open it up. If not, Brother Brian will put it on the screen. If you could stand for the reading of God's Word. Be in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Let us pray. God, thank you, Lord, so much for being able to gather in your house today. I pray that all of our hearts can be open. As we, as we feel your spirit, we, we just, we, we, I'm excited inside. I'm excited about uh, who you are and, uh, and the God that we worship. I pray today that our hearts uh, will be here with an open mind, open hearts, and just a spirit of humility today as we open your word and we study it. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So, Miss um, Clara gave me an upward, uh, upward devotional, um, upward call devotional book. I've uh, been doing it this year, and uh, every day, something really good in here. And uh, I thought this, this one tied with this message, uh, so I wanted to use it to kind of open today. Um, it was an article out of the Journal of Positive Psychology. I thought the title of that was better than the uh, Journal of Negative Psychology. Right? Um, but in that uh, study, it shows that uh, people that are dating, right? so those that are dating or getting ready to date or that have dated, you can relate to this. Right? But when you're looking for someone to date, people often gravitate toward the aspect of humility. They gravitate toward that. I mean, who wants to go, who wants to go, you know, well, some, some girls like bad boys. That was in a movie, just watched. All right, they like that, right? But, you know, oftentimes people will gravitate to the aspect of humility and they shy away from arrogance and egos, right? And when I think about that, it's just what the Bible says. You know, this study affirms what the Bible says about the nature of people, right? So the book of Proverbs, you know, talks a lot about humility. Romans, associate with the humble. Paul writes, associate with the humble. Don't associate with the proud, right? So that's all throughout Scripture. And so today we're going to talk about humility, what it is, what it is not. And then our passage talks about Christ's humility and the example of it. But not just humility, because I think there's a sweet spot in our walk with Christ that I want to share with you today. And that's the title of the message is The Sweet Spot confident humility. You know, it might sound like an oxymoron, but I'm going to walk through that today and talk how I feel that confident humility is true. And we want to look at it through a lot of scripture. I don't know if you remember my trick, but you know, how many tabs you see is how many scriptures I got. We're not going to go through all of them, right? You're probably freaking out. You see all these little pink tabs, but there, there, there's a lot, right? But when I look at that, you know, I've been struggling with the fact of, do I use too much scripture? Do I not use enough scripture? And have you ever thought to yourself, Am I using too much scripture? It hit me this morning. 
I'm like, oh, I'm worried about these tabs because I've never made it past once and then go back up, but I almost had to start. I'm like, am I using too much scripture? I don't think you can use too much scripture in a sermon. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to worry about that. But we're not going to hit all of these, but we're going to hit most of them. All right. So in our passage, right, it definitely starts out in our passage um, where freedom, uh, excuse me, where humility, right, what is humility? And I hate when you look up a word and it tells you another word that you think you understand, but you might not quite understand. So when you look up humility, it says freedom from pride or arrogance. Eh, okay, you, you think you know what pride is. You think you know what arrogance is, but I want a really simple, small word, right? right so, but thankfully, our scripture gives us, you know, what freedom for pride or arrogance looks like. Because right here in verse 3, it says, do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, right? I think about last week when we started on the very first page of Genesis, bam, we went to Genesis 1-1 and we talked about, right, a little bit about how this is where we attack a lot of our sin nature and human nature because right here on the very first verse it says, and God created the heavens and the earth. God created it, right? But we want to be the creator of our own universe and around us. But then when we flip over, right, we see pride and arrogance right here in chapter 3 in the Bible, right? It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? We want to be like God. We have that pride in us. We have that arrogance in us that we want to be like God, and this is where we fail first as humankind. You don't have to flip much further to see pride and arrogance continues as a theme. Chapter 4, right? Chapter 4, verse 5 in Genesis says, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. His brother sacrificed, God accepted better, and he didn't like it. He was too prideful. But his wasn't the best. His work wasn't the best. He was too prideful. And God warns him here that it's going to affect him. It's going to eat him up. We talked last week. It was eat up inside. And then right after that in verse 9 it says, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Right? Because that pride and that arrogance was in his heart. Right? He wanted to be the best. Right? He wanted to be the best. That selfish ambition that our passage talks about. If we go over to um, James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Right? Own desire. We're enticed by our own desire. We talked about money. How much is enough money? Just a little bit more. Right? I've got food on the table. My bills are paid. But man, I would like to have just a little bit more. It's the same way with our sin nature. If we're in something, you know, alcoholic, how much is enough? Just one more. If you're a drug addict, how much is enough? Just one more. Right? It's our own desires, right? It's that whole sin that we fall victim to, right? But God says right here, do nothing for selfish ambition, so we have to fight those desires. All right, maybe in the workplace, what does a selfish, what does a selfish desire look like in the workplace? All right, talking to Brother Jeff this morning, 
he goes, um, talks about pride in the workplace, and he says, oh, I hate those people that just take all the credit. Right? Right? Oh, yeah, everything went well. Oh, yeah, that was me. That was all me. That was all me, brother. I did it. I did it. Then when something goes bad, what happens? Where are they at? That's all them. It's all them, right? It's nothing there. But that's what, you know, that pride, that selfish ambition looks for in the workplace. Another way that pride is in the workplace is if someone's withholding information. Right? Think about it. They know something that you don't know, right? And they withhold that piece of information. Maybe it makes you look bad or it doesn't make them look as good, right? And if you withhold that information, that's pride and arrogance in the workplace. Right? Again, in our Philippians passage, it says, then it count others more significant than yourself. This one's hard, you know? Because this world's all about who? All about me. All about I. Number one. Another country song. Yeah, me oh my. Right? Everything revolves about what? Us. Think about all the commercials, you know? We're working with, uh, work at Tetanamark, work for P&G. I don't even want to know how much money they spent on the Super Bowl. Do you notice that? Downey, well, you're probably not in tune to it like I would be, but the Downey, the Tide, all, all that's P&G, right? But what? They think that you need it. They need you to buy it. Please buy it because that helps me, all right? <laughs> Sorry, was that selfish? Um, who's preaching? All right. <laughs> Very good. Brought to you by Procter Gamble. All right. So, but no, you, you know, it's like, they teach you, right? They condition you. You have to have this. You have to have this. You have to have this. You need this. You need this, right? But in fact, we probably don't need it, right? And the third one in, in what uh, pride looks like is in, in our passage says, look out not only for your interest, but also for the interest of others, right? Paul tells us to look out for the interest of others, right? Very sweet example, all right? Very sweet example is um, soap in the shower. Just so you know, I don't put soap in the shower and I never run out of soap in the shower because I have a wife that always puts soap in the shower, okay? Because she is super sweet and she always puts soap in the shower. Well, I was uh, researching some illustrations. I actually came across one about a seven-year marital dispute that happened because this man... Now, I'm not big on the, you know, the, the worldly stereotypical roles right, of bam, bam, bam structures. I think that, you know, men have a role, women have a role, but we work together, right, for the family, right? We work together for the family. But this was a story from, I think, about 200 years ago where this guy, you know, it was like, well, the woman does this, boom, 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 right? And it was her job to put the soap in the shower. And one day, she didn't put the soap in the shower. And he didn't speak to her for seven years. Now that, my friends, is a long seven years over a little soap in the shower, right? But he was more worried about his pride and taking, you know, his soap was supposed to be in the shower, right? I would just go get another bar of soap, right? But, so, in looking out for other interests, I think about, you know, that, that's a fun example, but already we're starting to hear about, you know, election stuff and political stuff, and I think about, oh my gracious, how much better it would be if people were focused on everyone's interest instead of their own, on both aisles of, of Congress, right? I mean, let's look out for each other, but everybody has what? Their own agenda, 
right? Their own agenda. No matter which side of the aisle you're on or in the middle, everybody has their own agenda. And it's not necessarily looking out for all people, right? So that's some secular examples. But everyone turn with me now to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 verses... Um, we're going to start in verse 9. Luke 18 verse 9. Say amen when you're there. Thank you very much. All right, let's read here. Now we're going to talk about spiritual pride a little bit. So we talked a little bit about worldly pride. Let's talk about spiritual pride a little bit. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. I'm going to be as touch sarcastic emphasis noted. Okay, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I tithe off of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have two people in this story from Jesus. We have this Pharisee, this scribe, this, ru this ruler, right, in the church, right? He's like, look at what I did. But then we have this tax collector who's often associated with a sinner. Where's he at? He's down here, beating his chest. Beating his chest. Asking for forgiveness. There's a difference. And we struggle. We struggle as believers have spiritual pride. I think that's where it comes in a lot of times. You know, the, why do people not come to church? They come to church because they think we're hypocritical. Right? Because we have too much spiritual pride in a lot that we do. We don't humble ourselves to other people. We don't humble ourselves to the people that need us most. Right? We don't humble ourselves. So it's not, pride is not only a secular issue. It affects all of us. All of us. Every day. Right? Every day it affects us. And this week as I've been preparing this message, it's hit me in a lot of different ways. About why do you say this? Or why do you say this? Or this person. Right? I had to help Brother Dave back there yesterday. I had a situation. I saw some, different, uh, you know, two different pastors, you know, kind of, or elder and a pastor, kind of getting a little heated. And it was like, pastor, elder, pastor, elder. It's just a game of basketball. I'm like, it's pride the root cause here. Because I'm like, it's just a game. Let's teach these kids how to play. But my wife will tell you that four weeks ago, I got caught up in it, right? I got caught up in it in that same situation because my little girls were playing this big girl team, right? And I wanted to beat that big girl team, right? Guess what? We didn't beat that big girl team, right? And I had my coaching voice on when my wife asked me a question. You don't have your coaching voice on when your wife asks you a question. <laughs> it doesn't go very well when you do that. But she was awesome, and she realized I had my coaching voice on, 
And she brought me a walking taco a half hour later at halftime. And I gave her a little kiss, told her thank you, and we moved on. Right? But it creeps in in our lives. Pride creeps in in our lives. Man, it is so hard. This, this, one, this one, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis, I've been reading a lot of stuff. You know, he, he just he says so many times, like, this is the sin of all sins. Because it leads to everything else in our lives. So, I didn't really answer what humility is with a definition. I gave you what humility is with what it is not. All right? It is the absence of that pride and arrogance in our life. So let's look at Christ's example of humility. Right? And that's primarily what our passage is today in Philippians, is Christ's example of what true humility is. Right? Humility is viewed as a weakness in our culture. It is. Humility is viewed as a weakness in our culture. Right? But for our Christian faith, it is one of the most essential characteristics of a Christian is humility is humility, right? So in our passage, it tells us several things that, that Jesus did. So if you go back to our primary passage, Philippians chapter 2, right? Verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? He did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. I read this. And I think to myself, if anybody that ever walked on the face of this earth could feel that way, it would be Jesus. If anybody could be that equal, he's a part of. But right, if anyone could feel that pride, it would be him. But he did not feel that way. Right? He gave up. Jesus gave up his seat in heaven. He came down to walk with us. Money's always a way to tie stuff together. So I looked up. You know, what would, what would I give up? You know, what would I give up? I looked at the richest list, richest people list. I was like, I wonder how much money they would give up, right? So the richest man is Jeff Bezos. I don't know if I said his last name right. Do you know if I said his last name right? I don't know. But he's an Amazon CEO. $117.5 billion is his net worth. Would he give it up to save somebody? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know these guys' character. I, I don't know their character. I just give you from a standpoint of, you know, Bill Gates is number three now, $108.8 billion net worth. Poor. And Mark Zuckerberg is $77.7 billion is their net worth on Facebook. He's number six, right? They do a lot of good things. I just share this number with you to think about what would you give up? What would those guys give up to save someone? I don't know. I don't know. Let's look at Luke 18, 18 through 19. Luke 18, 18 through 19, right? So he said, God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think a very short example of this is the rich ruler in Luke 18, 18. And the, the rich young ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Right? And there's more to that story. But the point here is Jesus worried about the attention on himself. No. He wants that attention to go to God the Father. Right? 
God the Father. He alone is good all the time. God is good, right? All the time, God is good, all right? Our passage says that Jesus emptied himself, emptied himself. This one got a lot deeper than I thought it was going to. Emptied himself. It went a lot of different directions as I was looking at it and studying. What did it mean when Jesus emptied himself? You know, superficially, I wanted to say he gave it all, and he did, right? Jesus emptied himself. One of the things that I, I read about this was, I'm going to get, uh, I'm sad Carl's not here because it's a good engineering example, but addition by subtraction or subtraction by addition. Everybody heard of that? Kind of odd, but, right? But this is a, one thing I read was addition by subtraction. So God, when he sent Jesus down, Jesus was everything that he needed to be. But what did he do? He took on human nature and human form when he walked the earth. A good example of that would be, I don't know if anybody's, anybody got a new vehicle lately? Anybody bought a new vehicle lately? Chris, what'd you, I'm not going to ask you what kind. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll go, uh, we'll go, we'll go, um, I got another illustration with a car in a minute. We'll go a brand new Porsche. We'll just forget the Chevy Dodge Ford debate, all right? We'll bypass that. We'll go straight to a Porsche, all right? We'll go straight to a Porsche, all right? So let's say, let's say Brother Chris wants to get a new Porsche, all right? And he says, he goes out to the dealership and he gets in that bright, nice new Porsche, right? And the dealer says, oh, you can take it for a test drive. Sure, go ahead. Chris says, sweet, right? So he peels out of the, peels out of the, uh, the lot there, right? And then he takes exit five. He comes out to one of these cornfields. He says, I want to see what this baby can do. And he just off-roads that thing. Right? Good 20 or 30 minutes. He's having fun. He's like, that's pretty nice, but it's time to take it back. Time to take it back. So he takes it back to the dealership and that car. That car sells and he says, what in the world happened? I just took it out for a test drive. If we, I hate, I hate reducing God to it, but for sake of illustration, if God is that bright, shiny new Porsche, he clothed himself in all the mud and dirt and sin of humankind. He put all that on to become less than what he really was, right? But I know that Jesus still had power, because what did he do? He what? Gave sight to the blind. What did he do? Sight to the blind. He healed the lame, removed leprosy, gave deaf. He allowed the deaf to hear, right? And many more miracles. So he didn't give up his power, but he took on human nature. All right? So he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant. Matthew 20, 28 Excuse me, Matthew 28, 20. This whole, this whole story is really good. I just want to read the last part, though, because these, these two moms are, are debating back and forth for their, their son. They want to be closest to God, right? That's a whole arrogant, arrogant argument anyway. But even at the end of this passage in Matthew 20, 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to serve, not to be served. 
And then the other great illustration in the Bible about serving comes from John, chapter 13, verses 12 through 15. John chapter 13, verses 12, starting at verse 12. It starts up a little sooner, but just uh, this is the, uh, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right? He washes the disciples' feet. I think I've shared before, Renee says, Joel's feet are getting so big now, it's not cute little feet, it's stinky man feet. Right? Stinky man feet. No offense. He takes a shower every day. We make him. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Jesus said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Right. Yesterday, basketball, I told Brother Dave, he said something about, I said, washing. I was like, yeah, I'm all about some serving, but I don't know if I'd wash your feet. But anything else you need? Right. Anything else you need? Right. But think about it. Are you willing to serve anybody, anywhere, and anytime? Are you? There's a book called Margin, or Concept of Margin. Do you leave margin in your life for that call that needs, somebody needs your help? Right? Do you do that? Are you willing to serve at any time, anywhere, or any place? I'm going to make my wife's cheeks blush because I keep giving her good examples, filling her up with pride. Um, but it's an act of humility. So my dad was here two weeks ago. And um, he had uh, fallen, broken his arm, right? So he came up here, and his feet were swollen, and his arm was swollen. Like, he took off his glove, like, oh, whoa. This joker is swollen up, right? And um, so that Friday night, I was like, hey, Dad, let me rub your hand, right? And so I got some of the coconut oil and put it on his hands, and Ryan rubbed it, and he's, ah, you know, ah. I was barely squeezing it. It was like, ah, ah. The next morning, it was about the same. It looked a little better, right? And then, um, so, Saturday night, I asked Renee, I was like, hey, you mind? Because it, it, it hurt me to hurt my dad, right? It hurt me to hurt my dad, especially when I didn't think I was hurting my dad. And um, I was like, Renee, do you mind rubbing his hand down for me? Right, because it was still swollen. And uh, she said, yeah. Yeah, so she asked him, and um, he said, uh, and he said in that very uh, um, implicative way, I don't know if that's the right word, but hinted, he hinted at, boy, my feet probably sure would benefit <laughs> if, if, if you rub my, rub my feet just like my hand. And uh, she said, well, Rayford, I can do that. I can do that. And she rubbed down my dad's hand and both my dad's feet for 30 minutes. Saturday night, and we got up Sunday morning for breakfast. His hand looked really good, and he said his feet looked really good because she took that time to serve, right? So now, this is the same woman that told me this morning that I needed to fix my tie, and she said, you can't be fixed. She was really quick on that, right? I got I to gotta, I gotta bring her down a little bit. I got to bring her down a little bit. That's the Renee. That's the Renee. 
No, but, but, but are you willing to serve any time, any place, right? Christ was. And then the last point of Christ's example is he became obedient even to the point of death, right? He could have came into this world with all the pomp and circumstance, all the glory, put the rod down and said, I'm here to take over. But he didn't. His call was to build that bridge back between mankind and God. Right? When we go out, we want to conquer the day. Right? We want to conquer the day. We want to lead this company. We want to lead this mission group. We want to do this. We want to lead this. But we might not be called to all of that. And we talked a little bit last week about we have to listen and discern to what God's call is for your life. And sometimes that's obedience for doing something less than what we want to do, right? You may want to play in the NBA one day. Sorry, I looked at Eddie. You might want to play in the NBA one day, right? But you might be a missionary instead, right? You don't know what God's going to call you to do. Um, by the way, side note, on the trailer of God's Not Dead, I saw that Tim Tebow was uh, helping like direct a Christian-based movie, and then Steph Curry had helped support and like executive director or something of uh, of a Christian-based movie. So I like it when those guys do, you know, pour back in to the mission field. So maybe you can do both, play in the NBA and be a missionary, right? Andrew Murray had this quote about Christ's humility. So l listen up for this one. He said. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature, the eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. Right? Very good quote. Encapsulates everything that we've shared here about Christ's example of humility. All right? So hopefully you've got a good picture of Christ's humility here for us. Because right, next I want to talk a little bit about um, confidence. Confidence, right? And there is a, a sweet spot. Brother Chris, sorry, I've been over here playing this morning. All right, there's a sweet spot, right, that I want to try to find this morning, right? There's a sweet spot. Does everybody know what a sweet spot is? I have a sweet spot on a basketball court. I do not know where the sweet spot is on this club, but it's somewhere. It's somewhere on this club. It's supposed to be like slightly off-centered and upright. What this mark is here and here and here, I have no idea what that is. Right? But there is a sweet spot right, that comes in our Christian walk. And that's what I want to try uh, to go through with confidence a little bit here this morning. Let the fall. All right. That sweet spot, I ask a question. I ask a question Wednesday night at, at Bible study. And I want everybody to think about it for a few seconds. And that question is this. What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? What do you think about God thinks about when he thinks about you? All right? So I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to name any names. But thank you for those that participated in this short survey. I should be more focused on his word. Sometimes he thinks I'm not as faithful as I should be or pray as often as I should. He thinks I don't listen enough. 
He thinks, lead others to me and stop doing it your way. Go on. All right. Like this one, few like me are all unique. A lot of good ones. He loves me, but is very disappointed in some of the decisions or choices that I've made. Listen to me right? and work in progress. Right? Some of the things that think about when God thinks about me. And those two correlate with one of the top two most common answers that this gentleman said he gets. Well, the first one is disappointment. We think that God is disappointed in us, and we think that he is frustrated with us. And as parents, we're disappointed sometimes, we're frustrated sometimes in our children, but we get stuck there, right? But how proud of them are we, right? A little bit more on that one in just a second, but we, we stay there, disappointment and frustrated me. Why? Because we see the true what? Selves. We see us for who we are. We know what mistakes we've made. We know what dirty laundry we have. We know how much we try to cover it up with our actions. Right? We know all that. Right? And as long as we keep putting our trust in ourselves and trust in other people, we will continue to be disappointed and we will continue to be frustrated. Look at Psalms 118. Psalms 118 verses 8 says... It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Right? Proverbs 3.5. Some of you might have this one memorized. Proverbs 3.5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and make your paths straight. Make your paths straight. Right? Our confidence comes from being a child of God. Right? Our confidence comes from being a child of God. Think about that concept for a minute. We talk a lot about the parent-child relationships. Even if you didn't have children, you've probably helped uh, mentor children or help other children grow, whether in the church or in your family. Most of us always understand the parent-child relationship. Some of us have good experiences. Some of us have uh, bad experiences. But I want to focus on that concept of being a child of God. A child of God. It's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, don't have to flip with me back to the Old. I'll read them real quick. In Exodus 4.22, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is Moses, Thus the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. So in the Old Testament, a child of God, he's talking about his chosen people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 14.1-2, uh, he's talking about clean and unclean. Uh, food, it says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And then in verse 2, it says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? He chose the Israelites. Okay? Now turn with me over to Romans 9, because I want everybody to make sure you look at this passage together. Romans 9, verse 4 through 8. Few little technical words in here, but I want to just show you the transition. I want to show you the transition here from the Old Testament to the New Testament because I can see it plainly and I want you guys to see it as well. Everybody there? Got it? Say amen. Everybody's awake. Everybody's awake. 
Here we go. Verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, patriarchs as fathers, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. So he's talking about the Israelites and the relationships of the Old Testament, right? But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because he is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, I always love it when it says this means and they explain it. Okay? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of the promise. And that promise is if you come to Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. You are adopted into his family. Thank you so much for that. Right? So all believers are adopted by God. Right? And there's, there's a lot of uh, benefits. My wife and I have talked about you know, possibly adopting. Others have as well. Right? So there's a lot of benefits of adoption. So, so what are some of those benefits of adoption? A couple of those. I, I took them just from one of the national websites that I found. And every one of them, every one of them, I could relate back to a scripture somewhere. First one, benefits of adoption. Experience the joy and blessing of adding a child to your family. Right? Experience that joy or blessing of adding a child to your family. Right? When I think about that one, I go to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. And that is the parable of the lost sheep, specifically in Matthew 18, 10 through 14, right? Talks about how there's a hundred sheep in the field. There's a hundred sheep, a hundred children. And if one of those gets lost, what does he do? He goes and looks for them. And then what does he do when he finds that child and he brings it back to his family? He rejoices, right? He rejoices when he finds that lost sheep. Second benefit of adoption is building new meaningful relationships. Building new meaningful relationships. Look at Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 24. Hebrews 10, 24 says this. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I like that because a lot of times we say, don't stir up no mischief. Right? Don't stir nothing up. Stir in a negative way, but here, stir is a very positive thing. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And when you bring in another child, you're building those relationships so that what? You can work together. You can be a family together. You can accomplish more, and you can accomplish more for God. Another benefit is adopting a more regular schedule. I was like, I don't know about this one. I don't know about if you adopt somebody, if you're going to have a more regular schedule. Terry's laughing at me. It's not quite as regular, right? It can be a little chaotic at times. But when I think about a regular schedule, it's talking about the need of the child. They need a regular schedule. They need some um, just structure in their lives because they've been in and out of this home or this place that's not as stable. They need that structure. Hell, as a child of God, how much do we need that structure? A couple weeks past, we, we talked about how Jesus went when? In the morning. He went in the morning 
and had his time alone with the Father. And that set his day up for all of his work. He had a set schedule. I, get, I guarantee you he didn't heal this person at 10 and, you know, you know, add some more fish over here at 12. You know, he, he didn't go through that kind of schedule. But he started his day every day talking to his father. All right? Benefit of adoption. Um, you expose yourself to new activities and interests. You expose yourself to new activities and interests. Whatever child comes into your family is going to bring their own strengths and weaknesses, right? But when they come into a new family, it goes to me to that 2 Corinthians passage, 5.17, which is you know, on a top 10 list. It says, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. When they get brought into a new family, they get a new start. They get a fresh start. As believers, they get a new family and a church family, and they get a fresh start. And then one more benefit to adoption is continuous learning and growth. I'm a personal believer in continuous learning and growth in all facets, you know, whether it's in the secular workplace or it's here or wherever. We always want to learn and get better. And adoption gives us that as we um, continuously learn and grow. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge. Ears of the wise seek knowledge. I thought that was interesting where it says ears of the wise seek knowledge. Because what do ears do? They listen. They listen. Right? New members of the family will listen to their parents, to their church. And we need to listen to them as well. That's another benefit of adoption. All right? And then we're going to go over to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. All right? Because when you get brought into a, the child of God, there's this concept of an heir. I don't want to read that. Galatians 4, verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent a spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. Think of an heir of what? Right? An heir of what? What do you, what do you get? Right? What does this God that I now believe in, what, who, who is he? Right? And then f- flip to one of Psalms 104 with me. Psalms 104. Flip with me to Psalms 104. When I look at who God is, this psalm, as in much of it, this poetic psalm, is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to, sometime this week, read Psalms 104. It starts out, O Lord my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor, majesty. It goes on, verse 5, he set the earth on the fountains. Verse 8, the mountains rose, the valley sank down, the place that you appointed to them. Verse 10, you made the springs rush forth. Verse 13, from your lofty abode you water the mountains. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the season. The sun knows it's time for setting. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Then verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. 
I skipped over a lot in that passage, but when I read it, it just talks to me how good my Father is, how good your Heavenly Father is for us. Back to that Galatians passage, you're an heir of what? Right? You're an heir of what? Right? You're an heir to everything that he's made. Right? And I don't want to dive too much into it, but I think of heir, an heir of what? I think of being able to join him in heaven right? at the end of our earthly life. We get to join him in heaven. We get to be with him in everything that he is. Everything that he is. And we should have confidence in that because we know what that final victory will be. Right? We have to have confidence that we are a child of God. Right? And then when we accept Christ, we become into his family. Therefore, we get to enjoy the benefits of that new family of believers. All right? That's where our confidence comes from. But when everybody take a pencil... Take a pencil and draw a line on your bulletin. Doesn't matter where. Okay, grab your bulletin. Take a line. Take a pencil. Draw a line. Go ahead. Go ahead. Draw a line on your paper. Anywhere. Draw a line. I got your line drawn. Dick's got it drawn. There is a very thin line between confidence and arrogance. Remember that. There's a very, very, very thin line. I should have had you use like the 0.3 lead instead of the 0.9 lead or whatever, right? But there's a very thin line between confidence and arrogance, right? Here's another, here's a good, another Porsche illustration that I heard, right? Now for me, it was a bright red Chevy truck. Dang it, I said it. All right. So, all right, imagine, and some of you probably have ran into this, right? But you pull up to the stoplight and you're in whatever vehicle you're in. And you look over on the other, other side of the stoplight there, right? And there's this uh, young kid. Let's say he's 16. Let's just go all the way. Young kid, 16. And he's driving in that nice brand new Porsche that Chris just got washed up as he returned to the dealership, right? So he's got that nice Porsche, right? And he's driving that Porsche. And how's he sitting in that Porsche? Is he like, yeah. No, he's like, what? Oh, yeah. It's my Porsche, baby. Yeah. But when you, when you look at him, he's like this, right? But you know the truth, that that Porsche is really not his. Whose Porsche is that? That Porsche is his daddy's, right? That Porsche is his daddy's. And his daddy let him drive that Porsche, but what? He's puffed up, that pride and arrogance. Again, yeah, he's probably got, got some speakers in it, right? Again, this, uh, these illustrations, I, I don't like bringing God down, but we use them to build him up. But that Porsche that we get to ride in, right? That Porsche that we get to ride in is called God's grace. Right? And we cannot be riding around in God's Porsche of grace and salvation with our chest puffed out. Right? Because that's not what he tells us to do. Because it's not my Porsche. Grace is not mine. I did not do anything to earn that Porsche. I did not do anything to earn that grace. God gave it to me when I accepted him. And that's where a balance comes in between arrogance and pride. So, what does confident humility look like in your world? 
Right? What does it look like in your world? Well, I saw an example yesterday on the court of what confident humility looks like. When a young man hasn't scored a basket all season, and man, he's there, he practices, he practices, and he's just not the greatest athlete, right? But confident humility on the court is when your three best players, all they care about is for that man to score a basket. And they know they can dribble. Let me see it. They know they can dribble. They can drive. They can dish. They can score their points. But all they care about. And the game is only, it helped when he scored like the first basket of the game. That really helped. Right? I think we got to get this guy to score. But it didn't stop there. We were only up like four or six points late in the game. And what? They're still driving in addition to him. Because they want to see him score. They're confident in their abilities. But they're humble enough that it doesn't matter how many I score. Look at how great that other guy feels when he scores one. Right? That's what confident humility looks like on the court. What does confident humility look like in the workplace? Right? In the workplace, actually, we, we, we stated it says, confident in your abilities, yet humble in your execution of them. But humble, you, you know what we can do. You know what we're good at, but you know what we need to get better in, right? One of my character flaws as a manager is I'm overly optimistic. I'm overly optimistic. We can do it. Let's go. We can do it. What do I have to do to counter that? I stay humble. I stay confident in the people that I can do, but I have to surround myself with people that tell the truth. We suck at that. We need to fix that. Okay, let's go fix that, right? right? But we can do it, right? We can do it. So confident humility in the workplace. From a leader perspective, confident humility, we said it earlier, right? It's not like, yeah, we did it. Woo-woo, 100% on-time delivery, baby. Let's go. Yeah, that was all me. With those four quality complaints, ugh, that's not my fault. Ugh, quality manager, screwed up. Ugh, what do you do, right? That's not what it looks like. Confident humility in the workplace says, yep, it was still my watch. It was still my watch. Let's go fix it. Let's go fix it, right? What does confident humility look like in your marriage? What does confident humility look like in your marriage? One of the most common prayers in a marriage is when a wife gets up and says, dear Lord, fix him. Amen. That is not a prayer of confident humility. A prayer of confident humility is, Dear Lord, you call me to be a husband, and I am nowhere near where I need to be. Help me listen better. Help me focus on her and what she needs. If you can find a marriage where they're both praying that prayer about the other person, that's a successful marriage. Right? That's what confident humility looks like in a marriage. Turn with me to John 3.30. John 3.30. John 3.30. Talking about John the Baptist. If you don't remember anything from today, write this verse down. 
John 3.30, he being Jesus must increase, but I must decrease, right? Just like the song, whoever decided to play it, thank you so much, right? Because that is what it's about. That's what confident humility is all about. It is the fact that we have to be confident as a child of God. But we have to be humble enough to make sure he gets all the glory. All of it. All of it. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, as a word of caution before we go. If you can find and develop this sense of confident humility, you will be attacked. You will be. Right? If you say, it's not all about me, who's it going to be about? It needs to be about God. But if you walk around with that and you've got it, you will become attacked. And I heard something this week. Well, it sounds just like this. It sounds just like this. Kevin, who do you think you are? Brother Randy, you're no good at what you're doing. Do you really think you can do that? Sister Mary, you're pitiful. There's no way you can lead that group. There's no way you could lead Bible study. How can you lead Bible study? Starts talking, right? Starts talking. And I challenge you today to stay confident and stay humble. I can't steal this, but I wish I could. And you've heard different versions of it, right? But when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his, his future. When he reminds you of your past, tries to bring you down, remember his future. He's defeated in the end, and we are victorious. With Christ, we are victorious. All right, very good. One final quote I want to share with you from Thomas Terence. Sums it all up, sums it all up. We are God's creatures, small, finite, dependent, limited intelligence and ability, prone to sin and soon to die and face God's judgment one day. But we are also God's children, created, loved, and redeemed by God's grace alone, not by anything in or of ourselves, and gifted by God with unique certain gifts, abilities, resources, and advantages, which are be to be used for His glory. His glory. So I don't know. Every person's sweet spot is going to be a little different. Right? Every person's sweet spot is going to be a little different. Okay? But my challenge for you this week is to go find it. Right? We're going to slice... We're going to hook. Just keep swinging. Just keep swinging. And enjoy it when it goes straight, because sometimes it does. Right? And enjoy it when it goes straight. Let's stand.